I've loved looking at Jonah with you all. Brian Loney and I prepare together each week. We talk about the passages, and you're going to get to hear from Brian in two weeks uh, as we enter into chapter three. But we've taken a, a good while through this, these first two chapters of Jonah. Luke kept saying, I'm really glad that you're preaching the same text after me. Uh, I want you to fix it. And I was, kept telling Luke all week long, that's not what I'm doing. I'm, I'm not fixing anything. I want you to go back and listen to Luke's sermon again uh, from last week in chapter 2. It was great. Uh, the way that Luke broke that down into God's judgment, God's presence, and gratitude was, was really strong. What I want to do is take a minute and sit with you in Jonah 2, 8 and 9. I want you to pause for a minute because we're almost going into Jonah 2.0 when we get into Jonah 3. Because you're going to read Jonah 3.1 and you're going to say, I've heard that verse before and you're right because you heard it in Jonah 1.1. And the writer of Jonah is doing something. And I want to argue that God is doing something in each of our hearts here. One of the signs of great writing is that it causes us to reflect and even to reread what we have already read. Flannery O'Connor strikes me that way. I don't know if it's because I'm Southern or if it's because her writing twists at points when I don't expect them. But when she wrote that short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find, and the end comes that is so startling, I find myself whipping back through the pages and going, wait a minute, how did she take me there? And this is what I hope that you see in Jonah. Usually the way that we go through books of the Bible is that we go slowly and it may unfold right before you. And you may not have any idea what's happening. But the book of Jonah is slightly different. It's only four chapters long. It would take you four minutes to read it this week. Four minutes. That's all it would take you. And what you would see is that Jonah ends in the same mind-bending way. That you go, wait a minute. If Jonah 4 says what Jonah 4 says... When Jonah says to God in chapter 4, verse 2, I knew you were a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting over disaster. Now, therefore, Lord, take my life. <laughs> You're going to scratch your head and go, wait a minute. What, what, what happened in chapter 2? And the writer of Jonah, and dare I say the Lord, intends just that. For us to go back to this high mark in Jonah, Jonah 2, 8 and 9, and to wonder what is happening. Imagine for a minute if you had Jonah's chapter 1. Jonah gets thrown over, he's swallowed by the fish, and the fish spits him up on the shore. Chapter 3, where Jonah obeys God, goes to Nineveh. And then you have chapter 4, where Jonah's mad at God because he relents. You might look at that and you might say, you know something? Jonah's a tough story. Jonah's kind of a jerk. And you might think, I, you know, don't be like Jonah. And that might be the response that you have from studying Jonah. Imagine if you had it like this. Jonah's chapter 1, Jonah's 2, where you hear Jonah, you know, from the belly of the whale go, 
God, I was sinking down and you saved me. And then you see chapter 3 and Jonah goes and the Ninevites repent. And then Jonah goes back to Samaria. And you might go, that's interesting. Jonah learned his lesson. What is the lesson that God is teaching me? But when we see Jonah's chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, and we read chapter 4, and we read that in response to God's kindness, Jonah is so mad that he says, I want to die. Jonah says, go ahead and take my life. Suddenly, Jonah leaves you and me very unsettled. No longer a neat bow to tie on something, a lesson to be learned, but rather a question that asks, who is this guy? And if you will allow yourself the question that asks, who am I? And ultimately the question that says, who is a God like this? Jonah 2, 8 and 9, in my humble opinion, is the high, mar- high water mark of this book. I've got this vision that we're going to have a memorization project in this church one day. I can't wait for it. And the first pass on this memorization project is that in every book of the Bible, we're going to have a verse that we memorize. 66, right? And then we're going to go back through, and then in each book, in each chapter, we're going to have a verse. And that would be phenomenal, wouldn't it, to be able to have that kind of scripture in your head? If there was anything that you memorized out of Jonah, memorize these two verses, verses 8 and 9. All right, they're on page 774 of those blue pew Bibles. And this is what they say again. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. And then Jonah, who's writing this, says nine, but I with the voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you've ever wondered, is there gospel in the Old Testament? Look right here. Maybe you're here today and you believe that the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, but the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. I don't understand the difference between the two. You can't read those verses and come away with that understanding and it be right. There's just no way. The mercy and the grace, the patience of God in the person of Jonah almost drips off the pages for you and me. You see anything except your expected God of wrath. But I want to say that this, these verses teach us two things. The main idea is this, that salvation is of the Lord. That's the end of that verse 9. In fact, that sentence just says salvation regards the Lord. That's all it says. It, it doesn't even have a verb in there. To say regards puts a verb in it in our context. It simply is very terse and it says salvation, the Lord's. And I want you to see... That salvation is of the Lord. In fact, it must be of God. It must be of the Lord, and I want to give you two reasons why. The first reason why is because of what we are saved from. It has to be of the Lord because of what we are saved from. And the second reason it has to be of the Lord is because of what we are saved to or unto. What's the point of salvation? Now look, Jonah is in the Bible, all right? Meaning that every generation of God's people have read the book of Jonah. Every generation of God's people have needed the book of Jonah. We ought to be really careful to think that we don't need the book of Jonah. I want to argue. I want to share with you the burden of my heart that we, that you all, 
that we together need this. I was walking around Crystal Lake this week in Newton with a friend of mine, and a tree was blown over into someone's yard. It was striking because the tree looked perfect. Huge canopy of green leaves. Solid trunk. And yet there it was on the ground. You and I both know that trees get blown over in their entirety because of the roots. Jonah reveals for us the root of sin. This combination of pride and false belief and offers a correction that not only clarifies who God is, but also clarifies our purpose as human beings. Let's look at the first one of these because we need this correction. Salvation has to be from the Lord because of what we are being saved from. Now this is the question that I have for you. What are you trying to be saved from? Are you trying to be saved from the anxiety that cripples you? That you've tried every technique, every opportunity, every instruction, every bit of wisdom offered? Are you seeking to be saved from mediocrity? The hope that someone comes to you and says, you are better than average? Are you seeking to be saved from boredom? From suffering? I have an annual ski trip with some friends of mine here in Newton. And if the weather's bad, the email that comes right before this ski trip is, look, for all of you who pray to gods, it doesn't matter what god you pray to, just pray to your god that the weather would change. I want to say to you that your comprehension of what you're being saved from will direct what and who you turn to, who you regard or cling to for salvation. But Jonah teaches us that salvation has to come from the Lord because we're saved from two things. Verse 8. One is that we're saved from paying regard to vain idols. And secondly, we're saved from forsaking the hope of steadfast love. Look at this with me. Saved from paying regard to vain idols. This idea of paying regard is worshiping. It is reverencing. Um, it is clinging in some of your definitions. You cling to worthless idols. And the idea of worthlessness is that of, of, of unsubstantiation, of, of, of breathlessness, of emptiness, of saying, this is what I'm going to take life from. And if you were to study the words vain in Scripture, you would find that that word not only has the connotation of that which is empty, but it has the import on those who put their trust in something empty like this, that it actually empties them. That clinging to worthless idols actually makes us empty and us worthless. 
Jeremiah 2, 5 says of God's people that they went after worthlessness and became worthless. In the description of the nation of Israel and particularly of the portion of Israel, Judah, before they're taken into captivity by the Babylonians, the writer of 2 Kings says that they went after false idols and they became false. And this is the connection that we want to see. The inescapable result of worshiping vain idols is that every one of us, we as image bearers of the true God, we take on the character of the object that we worship. That's what's undergirding this. Some of you have read uh, James Smith's You Are What You Love, and you, that, that idea resonates with you. You hear that, but recognize he didn't come up with it. Jeremiah writes it. This writer of 2 Kings writes it. And the second thing is that vain idols destroy those who worship them. Imagine a cantaloupe that you cut open and it's filled, and then imagine that cantaloupe once it is gorged out and it's empty. That's what happens in the worship of vain idols. It empties us. C.S. Lewis has a picture of this in The Great Divorce, those of you who like Lewis, and he envisions these people who have turned away from God and they come into reality, the edges of heaven, and, and the idea that he creates is that these people are almost like shadows, wraiths of people that you could see through and they try to step on real grass and it hurts their feet because it's so real and they have become almost transparent and false. Salvation has to belong to the Lord because we are being saved from paying regard to vain idols. But the second thing that we're being saved from is that we're being saved from forsaking the hope of steadfast love. That second part of verse 8. I don't know if you appreciate the Geico commercials at all. Um, I, I think it probably indicates my sense of humor that I do like them. But one of the ones that's out these days is that if you are in a horror movie, you make really bad decisions. Have you seen this? And so these four people are running from whatever is chasing them and they come up to a haunted house and they're looking at the haunted house and the one person goes, let's run to the attic. And the other person goes, no, I've got an idea. Let's run to the basement. And this one girl who sees the running car right there says, no, let's go get in the car and drive away. And finally, the fourth person goes, no, that doesn't seem right. Let's hide behind those chainsaws over there. And they decide to run and go hide behind the chainsaws, right? And then you see the, the guy who's the centerpiece of the horror movie sitting there going, unbelievable. And the statement is, people in horror movies make really bad decisions. And the other reason why it has to be God that saves us is because we are saved from forsaking the hope of steadfast love. This picture of worthlessness and pursuing worthlessness versus pursuing steadfast love. Now, some of your translations say grace, forsaking the grace that could be theirs. Some of your translations say forsaking God's love. This love is hesed. It's covenant loyalty. It's God's faithfulness to his people. 
It is this idea of a mutual liability that God enters into with us for those who belong together. That what we are saved from is that we are saved from paying regard to vain idols and from forsaking this covenant love. It's hard to tell when you read this verse, is it Jonah forsaking his covenant responsibilities to God or is it Jonah forsaking God's covenant love for him? And I think the argument has to be, it's got to be a both and, right? The recognition of what salvation really is, is a both of those things. The idea that salvation has to belong to the Lord is that those of us, human beings who have sinned, have have turned and invested ourselves because of our pride and our false beliefs of God, which are rooted in the lie of the desert, of the, of the garden rather, that we have forsaken the steadfast love of the Lord. Now look, here's the amazing thing. God sent his son for us, Jesus, the one who is greater than Jonah, as he himself says, the one who never strayed to false idols, who, who never forsook the steadfast love of the Lord, who was himself for our sake forsaken, he was forsaken by God so that you and I wouldn't be. Christian, that is where you stand today. You stand united to God because of his covenant faithfulness, his loyalty. He took on our sin. It is an amazing action by our God. But one of the things that we continue to do is we forget what we are saved from and we begin to look to other things for our identity. But the last reason why salvation has to come from the Lord, why it must be the Lord who saves, is because of what we are saved to or unto. And here we begin to understand the context of Jonah. Because oftentimes we as Christians also forget what we have been saved unto. What we have been saved to be as Christians. We read here that Jonah's really thankful to God for saving him. Jonah's stoked not to be in the belly of a whale. Jonah is very thankful not to be in the, in the, you know, in the bottom of the ocean. And I don't know if he knows it at this point. He's about to get spit up, right? And we both know that. And, and then we get into chapter 3, and we'll get to chapter 3 in a minute. But then you see that Jonah gets to chapter 4, and he is so angry with God. He says, I am so angry that I wish I would die because you have proven yourself to be exactly who you said you were. And that's kind of a twist of logic if you think about it. It's an amazing thing to get your, your arms around. Luke said last week, one of the ways to identify those idols, those vain idols that we tend to worship, is to ask yourself if everything were stripped away of church as you know it, of, of the hope that you have, both in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and that transforming reality of his salvation in your life, what would you have left in your life? 
He said, that's a great way to begin to know what you worship. Tim Keller likes to twist that the other way around and says, what is your worst nightmare? That if this were taken from you, you would say, I am ready to die. Just take my life. That right there is the vain idol. That idol that says, if you're not going to take my anxiety away, I want to die. If you are not going to take my mediocrity away, I want to die. If you're not going to take my boredom away, my suffering away, I want to die. Salvation is from the Lord. It must be from the Lord because of what we are saved to and unto. And I want to share three things quickly with you. The first is that we are saved to a right knowledge of God. The Old Testament speaks about this as a new heart and a new spirit. Now what's interesting is that we read in chapter 4 of Jonah, and again I'm putting you in chapter 4 because you've got to see the tension of verses 2, 8, and 9. We read in chapter Jonah, Jonah says, I knew that you were like this. This is just what you were going to do. And it's kind of shocking. You're like, Jonah, if you knew that was who God was, then why are you so bitter? But we miss it. We miss the import of this if we don't think our hearts are exactly the same. Because Jonah is not about learning a lesson. Jonah is about knowing a God who has shown you and me hesed, covenant loyalty, faithfulness, and that you and I, as we worship him, are shaped by that knowledge of him. We, the worshipers, are changed by the one whom we worship, this God of loyalty and of faithfulness, of salvation, right? Jesus is actually able to say to his disciples, eternal life is to know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. It is to remember that we are saved unto a right knowledge of who God is. And it makes sense if you believe that Adam and Eve first believed a lie about who God is. That the salvation that the Lord provides in giving Jesus Christ the perfect representation of who he is, giving him to us, God becoming a human being perfectly so that we might gaze upon him and go, now that's who God is. Unbelievable. And to be changed by that reality. To be changed by the one whom we worship. Salvation has to be from the Lord because of what we're being saved unto. And the second thing is, in order to be a blessing. Jonah was supposed to go to Nineveh and preach against Nineveh. And you would think that if Jonah grabbed this idea that my life is to be a blessing, he would have seen the Ninevites repent and he would have gone, hallelujah, filled with rejoicing and gone back to Samaria. This is wonderful news. But Jonah didn't. He missed what he was being saved unto. This idea 
of God's people being a blessing is from the beginning, from the beginning of God calling out his nation. I gave you the verses in Genesis 12 when God called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And he said, I'm going to make you a great nation and I'm going to bless every nation on the earth through you. When he took the Israelites from Egypt and he brought them to the base of Mount Sinai, he said, you are my people in whom I delight. I've chosen you and you are going to be a kingdom of priests, a royal, a holy nation rather, a holy nation. We see Peter pick this up in the New Testament when he says that the church are the chosen people of God, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation to proclaim the name of God. That's what we're saved unto, to make the name of Jesus great, to proclaim that name. But look, if we think that we're saved so that we don't suffer anymore, if we think that we're saved so that we never struggle from anxiety or so that we are not mediocre, we have missed what we're saved for. And the final thing is that we are saved to be members of a holy nation, to be a holy nation, to live uniquely. One of the things that we prayed for on the men's retreat is that we would go back into the communities where we live, and we would live lives that are unique, that look different, that cost because they are different, that live lives according to God's standard, according to his direction. James and Chris and I didn't hike the mountain. We went and to the Von Trapp family lodge and to the beer garden instead to get sausage and beer. It was great. These guys went up and hiked the mountain and James and Chris Petrides and I were over there eating sausage and drinking beer. James looks around and he goes, can't you just tell what Vermonters look like? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I can't really tell. And I was looking around and I was like, is that woman a Vermonter? And he was totally a Vermonter. I go, really? What, what makes that the case? And he tried to describe it. The only connection I can see in all of Vermont is Subarus. If you drive a Subaru, you must be from Vermont. What is it that marks you as unique? In Newton, in Wellesley, in Wabin, in Waltham, in West Rocks, wherever you live, what is it that makes you Unique. And to be a holy nation that lives openly for our God. I love Steph Shung, and the thing that she and I disagreed about the most are shades in a house. I don't know if you knew this, but if you went by Julian and Stephanie's house, the shades were always drawn, and they were drawn tight. You couldn't see light through those shades. And she would come to my house, and she would be like, can't you pull the shades? I feel like everybody's watching me. And I want to tell you, church, lift up your shades and let the world watch you and watch what is unique about you because you are saved unto something. Unto a knowledge of a God whose covenant love has been set upon you. You have been saved to be a blessing to a world that needs a blessing. And we have been saved to be a holy nation. 
living lives of holiness before our God. And the reason that Jonah causes the tension in us is not because Jonah doesn't get it. It's because we don't get it. And we are like Jonah. And every generation has been. And so we sing the song like the folk hymn. When I was sinking down, sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down, sinking down. When I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. You want to know the best thing about that song? We don't know who wrote it. We don't know who wrote that song titled, What Wondrous Love Is This? Because it is all of our songs. And it is what you and I need. And it's where we are going even now. Please pray with me. And let's look with expectation into these next couple chapters of Jonah.